Hey there. Thanks for joining us at this week's episode of the Apartment Academy, the multifamily industry's only operations-focused podcast and your institute for higher NOI. I'm your host, the Dean of the Apartment Academy, Daniel Cunningham, and today's guest lecturer is Eric Sussman, who's the founding partner at Clear Capital. Interestingly enough, uh, Eric is also an adjunct professor of real estate and accounting at the Anderson School at UCLA. So he really is a professor, really teaching at at uh, at, a, at a institute of higher learning. So um, uh, Eric's perspective is uh, a little broader today than than the operations side we often focus on. Um, and we're going to talk a little about uh, the market, what's happening right now in multifamily. Uh, you know what the trends are, and ultimately where are there opportunities in a market right now? This being October 2022, with interest rates on the rise, um, and uh, I think I thought it was a fascinating discussion. I, I wish that we, we could create three or four uh, other episodes with Eric um, because I think there was just a lot to unpack in today's real estate market. So, without further ado, here is Eric Sussman. Well, welcome to the Academy, Professor Sussman, a, a term in which case here I use non-ironically uh, because you actually, uh, you know, you, when you turn, when you go into the, you duck into the phone booth and put your cape on, you turn into a uh, super professor at uh, UCLA's Anderson School of Business, right? So, so you wear a lot of hats. Um, we're going to ask you to talk, uh, wear your, uh, your uh, real estate hat today, but um, your, your experience is going to allow us to delve into some other subjects. So so really pleased to have you uh, on the show. It, it, give us just a little bit, Eric, about your background from PricewaterhouseCoopers days to, to now. What, what's your journey been like? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a, that's, that's a long uh, uh, area of, of discussion. But uh, you said it pretty well, Daniel. I guess, broadly speaking, I live in sort of two worlds. I'm the managing partner of a real estate private equity firm, Clear Capital. We do value-add multifamily acquisition and repositioning, and there are lots of others in the space that do that kind of magic. I'd like to think we do it better, but we do it well. And then uh, I'm a longtime faculty member at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. I'm, To my knowledge, I'm the only professor in the country with appointments in accounting and real estate. I actually joined the faculty as an accounting professor. Um, you mentioned uh, Cooper. so my my one of my passions and interests is actually forensic accounting and fraud of all things. I'm one of the somehow experts in the country in that area. And then uh, I live the, in the real estate world. So you're going to get both perspectives today. So buckle up. Hmm. I'm not sure I thought I'd ever hear the phrase. One of my passions is forensic accounting. Hey, <laughs> I, 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 I know. Usually that involves intoxicants and the rest of it. But uh, yeah, no, I don't know why. I, I always joke, Hale, that uh, if I hadn't been a, a professor type in, in real estate, I would have been some kind of uh, detective. You know, I, I, I've always, I think, um, Unsolved Murders, uh, those various TV shows, Forensic Files are some of my favorites. So there you go. Right on. Well, um, I, I, it, we post the transcripts of this show. Uh, and we may rate very highly SEO for uh, for, for uh, forensic accounting as a result. <laughs> um, well, we we um, so Clear Capital. Are, uh, let's just uh, clarify the audience a little more. So, um, no no ground up construction. You're acquiring assets, repositioning. 
Exactly. That's well said. I mean, we, we do basically, uh, as I said, value add repositioning. We're buying a class C to B product and maybe turning to B plus, maybe A minus on a generous curve. Uh, we don't do any ground up construction because uh, my obsessive compulsive disorder and inability to control everything from neighbors to city council people uh, precludes me from getting you know into that market. But I, I certainly respect and appreciate those that are willing to do it. But um, we, we just focus on existing uh, existing stock. And a long hold period or a shorter pro forma? Yeah, that's the question we get asked all the time. It's changed, obviously, as the market shifts. Um, I used to say that we our hold period was maybe three to five years by the time we execute our plan and you know do the, do the magic of increasing rents and the rest of it. Um, I think that's changed for a number of reasons, uh, some driven by the markets and, and other factors but so now I say it's five to seven years um, you know but every asset is, is different and uh, look at some investors want out as soon as possible get their get their hit and others like to hold them cash flow existing uh, assets so try to give the investors what they're looking for as best we can yeah I can imagine these days um, investors are looking for a little more safety than they were a few years ago or a few months ago <laughs> yeah. You know, investors are fickle creatures, I say all the time. And, and you know, the analogy that I use, you know, if we, we, we could talk for a little, quite a bit about that, too. Investors are funny. And I, the analogy that I use is if, if uh, we've all been to Vegas and I don't know what everyone's poison is, I happen to be a craps player. And you think about the craps table, how it can turn from a very lonely, quiet, you know, sort of site to a, you know, everyone's screaming and, and people are throwing uh throwing bets on the worst bets of all possible, you know, possibilities, the hard 12 or something like that, or, you know, snake eyes. And uh, it's fascinating how that happens. The markets are the same way. Investments are the same way from euphoria to depression. It doesn't take that long, frankly. And so we're definitely seeing some, some change in the market today, obviously. Well, I like that analogy a lot. So, you know, folks have been folks have been putting their money on the hard 12 for the last, you know, six years and, and probably couldn't go wrong. They were hitting their point. Um, uh, but markets are shifting now. So let's talk a little bit about, if you would, Eric, about um, what's happening in the real estate market right now, what that's being driven by, interest rates, et cetera, investor perception of safety, all that sort of stuff. So w what's it like out there right now? You know, it's it's definitely changed. I mean, obviously, I'll focus on the multifamily market. You said you want to talk about uh, office or industrial or other market segments. We certainly can, depending on our time. The way I describe it now, Daniel, is I think people are in a, in, a, in a state of what I call price discovery, which sounds pretty wonkish and academic, but I think it's accurate. I think to a certain extent, sellers are still living in, in the good old days with a little nostalgia, wishing that they could still sell their assets for, you know, the three and four caps. Um, Meantime, buyers are out there thinking they want distress and they want some great bargains as, as a result of some of the dislocation out there and higher interest rates. Both are too early to the party, frankly. Um, so what you're seeing now is just far fewer transactions, a, a, not a lot of inventory or product for sale on the market. And I think a lot of even listings that are just not, you know, not actually being consummated in terms of transactions. I think, again, because sellers are still maybe a little bit dis uh, living in the illusory past and, and buyers are hoping for this uh, you know, great future of bargain hunting. And I think, let's say, both are a little bit off in their, in their timing. Is there, a, is there a, uh, um, a strong corollary between a rise in interest rates and, the, and a rise in cap rates? 
is it is it one for one immediate or is there some delay yeah it's first of all i mean that's one thing we all have to sort of appreciate and as an academic you know sort of a wonk the data with real estate is always by definition lag and we don't have real-time data people ask me all the time you know hey professor sussman what's happening in the real estate market and i'm like well what market are you talking about are you talking about you know single family in in austin are you talking industrial product in phoenix or, or whatever um so the, the, to answer your question really with specificity is really tough because we don't have the data but here's the way i think you can think about it daniels look we we've had this unprecedented really remarkable rise in interest rates certainly on a relative basis nothing like it in in history in terms of the the rate rises we've had from, of course, a very low base, but just an extraordinary rise. So that happens immediate, right? That That's a, a, a quick, immediate hit to sort of the denominator, if you will, the discount rate or sort of cap rates, whereas the rents or the numerator lag, right? Rents are going higher, but it's just lagging as leases roll and as you rent out units. So, you know, by definition, it has to be immediate. I mean, just if you're being thinking about the efficiency of markets, but it just doesn't work out that way because again, the way real estate transactions are is is it, the transactions don't even close immediately, right? Even the most quickly executed real estate acquisition, maybe 45 days if you're lucky, but more like probably 60 to 75 days. So there's a problem you have right there too, Daniel. Just the timing creates challenges in terms of answering your question, but. Theoretically, academically, the denominator happens right away. That's as interest rates go up, you should have that immediate expansion in cap rates, and the opposite's true. But the numerator sort of stays the same, at least in the very short run. And you, you know, you, you do your renovation magically, the way our firm does it. So that's how I think about it. Even given um, maybe cap rates that are sluggish to evolve, um, the impact to uh, in terms of of lenders and the kinds of loans that acquirers can secure is m more immediate. What, what's happened in, in that market, Eric? You know, obviously, look, you know, uncertainty is never good for markets. It's not good for investors. It's not good for capital providers. No one likes it. And we're in this you know, period of, of tremendous uncertainty. Um, so in some cases, lenders have just pulled out of the market. I mean, the biggest growth in the lending market in, in our world has been the debt funds, sort of people call it the shadow banking industry, which sounds so nefarious. But if you think about the traditional lenders to the real estate market, good old Fannie and Freddie, my favorite couple in the world, um, you know, they've got a really nifty printing press and their cost of capital is, is, is as low as anybody's. But what's happened actually over the last, I'd say, five to 10 years is the growth in real estate funds, Cerberus, even Starwood, Lument, uh, you know, Centerbridge, these sort of funds you may have not heard of, but they do a lot of sort of shorter term bridge financing to folks like us, value-add players. And that market has just, I mean, again, the data isn't available because they're non-regulated or essentially non-regulated. So that's where I think it's you've really got sort of uh, a lot happening. I would love to have visibility into their books because they've got a lot of floating rate debt and some assets are probably underwater right now. In fact, no question about it. Um, you know, meantime, other lenders are just increasing their spreads for the uncertainty. And obviously, as you've got increases in both the treasury rates and SOFR, you know, the LIBOR replacement, you know, you don't need a professor to tell you those were a lot higher in the last year. So you've kind of got it from a lot of different angles, which is 
not they're not positive obviously for the market obviously and has there been uh i don't know that there's a uh i don't know and you would if there's a metric or who's tracking the acquisition velocity right now but has there been a a chilling effect that we that we that we can note already on acquisitions yeah you get again it's much harder on in the in the uh commercial world i include even multifamily in that sort of sphere we get better and more timely data in single family, obviously, and single family transaction volume is way down. But I'm telling you anecdotally, it's way down in multifamily. But that data lags because you can appreciate there's no real way of measuring that data in real time. I mean, data aggregators like, you know, CoStar, Reese, or whoever you sort of people use uh, out there, again, Torto, Wheaton Research, it, it lags and they're scrambling to get data as best they can. Um, but it's, again, there's no central point of sort of market information where we have it. But I'm telling you, and everyone would acknowledge, the transactions are, are down uh, substantially. So even even in a, in a market like this, deals can get done if if buyers are willing to, to transact at a, at a higher cap rate, et cetera. Um, but there's, an, there's another, I think, fuzzy bit of the, of the crystal ball at this point, which is what are your performance what are going to look like? What are you going to anticipate is going to happen to the market? Uh, even if you can acquire an asset at a fair price, okay. do you project growth at this point in in rents? Do you? Yeah, is a res- you know, what is, what's um, a massive a recession of, do to us? Yeah, a lot of things go through my mind. You know, it, it's it's you know one thing I tell my students. I always ask this 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 question. I say, what's the one thing that's absolutely unequivocally true about every spreadsheet projection ever created? They're wrong, obviously. I mean, uh, I, I, I assume Cleo, the Jamaican psychic, that you know, she would have been great to have as an analyst. With them until You're dating until both of us, yeah, with Cleo. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't Jamaican or a psychic. It was shocking to learn this little data point. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I've always required uh, students and even in our office that we do, you know, we do sensitivity analysis. That is, you look at the three key variables driving any model and in real estate, of course, you know, exit cap rate, your projections on rental growth and that sort of thing. And you sensitize them. But your, the, the heart of your question goes to just how, how difficult is it to sort of forecast variables in such an uncertain marketplace? So what do you project? Um, I think you you have to sort of step back, and it, it's hard sometimes. It's just look look at the real estate, look at the dirt, look at location. Do you like the asset? Putting aside everything else, um, and then you sort of have to sort of think about your your model and projections, and so many variables that might go into your your model, which could be again a local sort of analysis on what the market looks like and whatnot. But you're absolutely right. Look, if you're putting together a model and you're thinking about, of course, yeah, what is the exit cap rate? market going to look like in three to five years or what is rental growth going to look like where we've got rental drops declines there's no question in recession rents decline they just do we can debate on how much but i would say this today that's why to me i think it's really important that you don't lose too much in in the individual cells of a model and you step back because we've look we've been through this we've been to this prom before i mean we've been through crises i've been through half a dozen of them in my career as my hair thins and my forehead grows you know i i'll go through more of them and so from my standpoint you have to step back and say look what's happened historically you've had rent drops and rent maybe a cap rate expansion but the fundamentals over time have dwarfed sort of the short-term moves. And we still have housing affordability issues. Apartments are the future. Higher density housing, multi-generational you know, housing situation is gonna persist. And those are real big tailwinds to the market. So 
And that's how I sort of not to get too sucked up in the short term, but recognizing, of course, it makes modeling and performers more difficult. Well, you, you, you touched on something else where you have some expertise that might be interesting to talk a little bit, which is uh, in spite of everything we just said about the uncertainty in the market and perhaps the, the difficulty right now in getting some deals done, um, I want to ask you, first of all, what, what that effect has on new construction. Because, uh, and then we want to talk about, you know, there, there is ostensibly a housing shortage in this, in this country. So, you know, when you have a housing shortage, you, you, you maybe think of a more price-resilient kind of market then. But, but first of all, will, has it, will this put a, with, a, with a threat of a recession, with will rising cap rates, will all that put an end, or, and, and the difficulty with lenders, does all that really bring new construction to a, a standstill? I won't say it stands still because there's always this lag, but of course, I mean, that's, that's the issue. Look, we, we've got to think about sort of the more systemic and structural supply issues in the real estate market. And then with the shorter term or sort of trends that are happening, given the rise in rates, both are relevant. But if you look at the data on housing starts, they're down um, and they're down substantially. It's, it's not surprising the higher cost of borrowing, shortage of labor, um, lack of available land, nimbyism, of course, all these sort of things that are sort of affecting uh, supply, both short-term and long-term. But n look, in the short run, you've had this extraordinary shift in the yield curve and interest rates, which create problems for, for contractors and developers to make deals pencil. So you've seen that in the data already, a decline in permits that are being issued. So the starts data, again, it was lag. You have the starts, which things are already out of the ground and happening. So those are going to be going to be built. They've gotten their commitments. But if you look at the permits, so the number of permits that have been granted over the last couple of months, those have, have fallen off substantially. So that speaks to however long you sort of think in the future we'll have fewer product coming out of the ground and a shortage in supply again exacerbated maybe the next year or two. Um, and look, on top of that, we've never, if you talk about single family, we've never reached the peak of 2004 and five, even in the, in the recent up cycle. So we've never built enough housing. Apartments have sort of maybe been built to sort of uh, make up for some of that shortage, but just not not enough. And it's it's generally class A product, so it's kind of problematic. And you, you talked about NIMBYism, NIMBYism also affecting public policy. So in the midst of, of a housing shortage, in the midst of now becoming more difficult to build, there are also things happening uh, on the public side that are making also exacerbating the problem. Are there are there areas to to be concerned about, Eric, or or, or uh, trends to be concerned about on that front? If you're thinking about investing in real estate, yeah, there's so many things to work to, to concern yourselves with. Look, I can think about a, a couple things. Let's talk about just nimbyism generally, right? Not in my backyard. I don't know if you've heard of banana, which is build absolutely nothing near anything near anyone which is now replacing uh, nimbyism. But that is a real issue. Just Yeah, it's incredible. But I'll just tell you one answer about that, because I want to sort of, the way I want to answer this question is sort of think, think local and then talk about government and public policy. So there's a great anecdote, a great anecdote out of uh, Atherton, California. I don't know if you know where Atherton is. It's, it's a hop, step, and a jump away from Stanford. It's, it's an enclave. I think the, the median home price is something like eight to $10 million. So we're talking high rent district. Anyways, they wanted to build 58, 58 apartment units in Atherton. And Mark Andreessen, if you know that name, he was the founder of Netscape and a very uh, well-heeled <laughs> venture capitalist. He and his wife 
wrote letters to the city council protesting these 58 units because of the typical stuff, right? It's going to affect this and that. And the, my favorite was it may affect their home values. This is like a billionaire, okay, who's writing a letter complaining about 58 units in their neighborhood because of their effect on home values. Okay, give me a blanking break, okay? I mean, this is the problem. And I could tell you lots of those anecdotes. So you have that at the local level. Meantime, of course, politicians who are supposed to be formulating housing policy are getting so much pressure from every side about the lack of affordability of housing, right? There was a great story in the New York Times uh, we were talking about earlier um, a couple of weeks ago in Kansas City, Missouri. And I don't think people think of Missouri as a hotbed for renter uprising, you know, where the I think the median home price in Kansas City is like 235000 or something. And here the city council meeting was interrupted by a bunch of protesters saying the rent is too damn high, the rent is too damn high. That was their chant. Um, and so think about that. That's Missouri. In Florida, which actually is a state, had statewide uh, abandoned or voted against rent control in the 70s, in Orlando, on the ballot next week, uh, is a measure to bring rent control back to Orlando in good old Florida. So look, I don't care where you are in the country, whether you're in California, Oregon, and we think of these bright blue states, or you're in Missouri, Florida, Colorado has some issues. Rent control is coming. Politicians are going to you know, have to deal with these these pressures of housing affordability and their constituents complaining. And, uh, you know, as I said, every everyone's a socialist. It, it involves their own pocketbook. So that's a, a real issue I think we all need to be sort of mindful of as you're thinking about the multifamily markets. And just I just want to give you the opportunity to say it because I know it's in somewhere deep inside that you want to say this. Has rent control ever served to provide a better housing stock or better... No. Okay. It never worked anywhere. Well, this is the issue, right? I mean, economists, you know, may not agree on much, and there's this old joke about economists that you should, you know, cut off every economist's left hand so they can't say, on the other hand, um, you know. But the one thing economists pretty much agree on is rent control and, and look, price controls generally. You think about tariffs or whatever; they don't work. They do not work. They're they're palatable, and they're sort of easy on the you know on the brain maybe for a lot of folks who think about uh, affordability issues but they just don't work and i've written a lot about this for a whole host of reasons many of us can probably appreciate rent control doesn't work i will just broaden that out to say that look economic sticks generally versus economic carrots they don't work and i'm a b true believer in economic carrots things like section eight or you know we're gonna do some other things uh, as opposed to economic sticks which are just a lazy and, and ineffective public policy. I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm, I'm relieved that your students there at UCLA are getting the right sort of education on this subject. Um, let's, let's um, I, I, boy, we could keep going on and on about this. Let, let's, um, let's wrap up with your insights into, given all of this, where is there opportunity right now in this? And by the way, given we should probably date, you know, this is October 31st, this is Halloween 2022. So, you know, this is as smart as, as either of us are at this moment in time. But uh, given that, where is there opportunity right now? How can you make money in real estate in times like this? 
Yeah, look, there's always opportunity. And the only thing, is, as Wayne Gretzky said, is it's about where the puck is going, not where it has been. So I tell my students, look, maybe because I, I, I talk about my own career. Look, I started my career in real estate, you know, 30 years ago doing infill projects and value-add projects in Los Angeles, Echo Park, Silver Lake, Hollywood, these gentrifying areas. And we, obviously we did fantastically well, and that game is basically over. Uh, you can't, I tell my students in candor, you can't do what we did. But what's happened? So what are the big trends? I think that's the key. To answer your question, you have to sort of look what's trending. And look, housing affordability is an issue. The migration from the coast is an issue. Look, that's why if you look at California, from Boise, Idaho, down all the way into, you know, into Phoenix and even parts of Texas, have grown so much on the East Coast. It was all the growth into Charlotte, Nashville, Atlanta, you know, et cetera. So people have left the coast. So that is a, a, a trend that is going to continue, in my opinion, as people look for uh, for more affordable housing, better schools, and just to be able to save some money. There was another article I read in the Wall Street Journal this week on, on a couple moving out of California to St. Louis, I think it was, back to Missouri. So to me, I think the future is going to be in markets that have been sort of maybe not your, you know, not your your markets that you'd be, that would make you very excited. I mean, if I said, "Hey, we're looking at Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, Columbus," you know, in Detroit, you tell me, Eric, have you been inhaling some of that cannabis, uh, California's uh, herb, uh, or what? And I would say, no. I'm thinking very clearly that I'm not saying clear capital is going to those markets, but I wouldn't be shocked, Daniel, if ten years from now we look at the, the, the markets that have really grown over, let's say, between 22 and 26 or something, and with some of these really class B to C markets, tertiary quaternary markets, suburbs of suburbs, because that's where people are gonna go to afford to live. And we'll see how that plays out. But that's my, my sense. Thank you for that, Eric. Is there, um, uh, we, we failed to ask this at the, at the onset of the show, is this Clear Capital Raise funds, is it all, is it, is it uh, do you secure your funds from you know, insurance companies, that sort of thing? Or can anybody listening, is there possible for them to reach out and say, hi, I'd, I'd love to invest alongside Eric? Well, my gosh, thank you for that, uh, that, that, that softball, Daniel. I, you know, it's the World Series, so I'm going to tee up and hit it. Um, well, look, I mean, obviously, we, we do raise money from accredited investors through, through, through Clear Capital. We're really syndicators at this point, which we have one-off offerings. So uh, we have done funds, blind pools before. But um, the one thing I would encourage people to do, because, I, look, at the core, I'm a professor and educator, um, and I wear multiple hats, but I do write a very lengthy quarterly news newsletter. I just released our, our third quarter newsletter. It's available on LinkedIn or our website. No obligation. You can sign up. At least see what I'm thinking of. It's 20 to 30 pages. I don't think uh, Warren Buffett is uh, shaking in his shoes about my letter. But um, I think your, you know, your listeners may find it worth reading, get some nuggets in there that are worth uh, reading. And if they're interested, of course, you can sign up for our various offerings and that kind of thing. Um, we do have one joint venture partner, but it's really mostly just accredited offerings to uh, investors like your listeners, I, I imagine. Wonderful. We'll put a link to the, uh, to the newsletter uh, and the LinkedIn uh, in the show notes so people can get to that easily. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, hate to cut us off, you know, short, but it feels short. Um, but uh, we really uh, shared a lot of great information um, and uh, we will, we will hold a, a show in uh, maybe six months and we'll see We'll go back and revisit your your predictions, and we'll see right. what's 
Hey, we'll uh, see what's right, what's wrong. It's my, my pleasure to be here anytime. Yeah, cutting it short. Remember, you're talking to a professor, so I, I get going in a half an hour. This is this is no problem. So uh, my courses are three hours long. So uh, no, anytime, Daniel. Happy to be a part of it. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Thank you for joining us at this week's episode of the Apartment Academy podcast. The Apartment Academy is a production of Leonardo 24-7, the industry's leader in multifamily operations and maintenance software. At Apartment Academy, we realize the hard work that goes into property management and the stress that comes along with it. Leonardo 24-7 takes the guesswork out of your team's day-to-day by providing customized daily guidance on tasks that need to be done, guaranteeing consistent operations across your entire portfolio. To learn more, visit www.leonardo247.com today. 